Welcome to another Macquarie Life Church podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. Welcome to another Macquarie Life Church podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. Good morning. Hello, how are you? It's nice to be back. Um, If you have a Bible, if you could turn with me to Exodus chapter 34. I'll just get my little clock started and get all set up. Um, So we're back. You had eight to ten years to change the locks and you didn't. Uh, So we got back in um, and we've moved back from Melbourne. And if I can be quite frank, Macquarie, my self-esteem has taken an absolute battering since I got back here. Uh, I, I forgot just how beautiful and tanned everyone in Newcastle is. And um, we don't, we've got, um, what's that stuff you've got up here? Uh, sunshine. We, we don't have that in Melbourne. And, and I'd like to thank each and every one of you. Many of you have been pointing out to me just how pale and white I am. Um, you're saying hello, but I can see it in your eyes. What you're really thinking is, oh, I want to do my bathroom in that colour. Um, you, you, you even sang this morning about the blood of Jesus makes us white as snow. So uh, thanks. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Um, when I, get, when I have to go to the tanning salon, they tell me to pack an overnight bag. Uh, so I'm trying to become more beautiful. I'm trying to discipline myself and become more like you wonderful, beautiful, outstanding Novocastrians. I've joined Jay Bolton's 10-week health challenge. Uh, I've started going to the gym. Uh, so on Mondays, I do cardio. On Tuesdays, I do weights training. On Wednesdays, I have a 15-year break. Uh, and then I <laughs> cycle again. Um, okay, Pastor Roz, thank you for the honour and trusting me with the Macquarie pulpit once again. It's a privilege, I don't take it lightly. Um, And thank you for last week. We are continuing with the series, Hello, My Name Is. Uh, Last week, Pastor Roz introduced the concepts of God having a name, meaning that he has a personality. He's He's not a concept, he's not a thing, he's not a force. He's a personality that wants to relate to you. And God wants to relate to us. We're going to dig into that a little more today. If you missed last week, I'd encourage you to get the podcast, download it, have a listen, and the series will build. Really what we're doing, and for some of us, myself included, we're going to unlearn a bit about God and focus again on the theology of God. And if you look at what the word theology means, it's the nature of God, who God is. And we're trying to line up our thinking more and more with what God talks about in the word about himself. Now, I've left my clicker somewhere. Here it is. Um, Exodus 34, it's God's self-disclosure statement. Really, if we have a look at it, it's God handing us his business card. He introduces himself and he talks about his name and his character, what his name represents. This Exodus 34, 6-7 is the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible. The biblical authors cycle back to this verse time and time again, and I'm going to show you some examples this morning where this verse gets trotted out throughout both the Old and the New Testament. Uh, I've been reading a book by John Mark Comer called God Has a Name, and he calls this the ground zero of building a theology of God. So in this series, we're working through it line by line. Um, The background, and and Ros brought this last week, uh, Moses asks God to reveal himself, to show himself to him. And God says, look, I can't show you my face because you'll burn up. 
So I'm going to show you my wake. He gets Moses to hang in a cave. God walks past, and then he allows Moses to see the after effects of his presence moving through. And this is the verse that describes what happened at that point. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. But by no means will he clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This morning I'm going to look at Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious one. Uh, In a couple of weeks' time, in the 6pm, I've got the privilege of speaking about how God doesn't clear the guilty and he visits the curse of guilt on the generations of children. So, um, uh, who who, who does the rosters? Uh, Thank you. Uh, Thanks a lot. Um, Look, so if you're thinking in a couple of weeks, thinking of coming to a 6pm, just stay home. Uh, (laughs) Stay home and watch Married at First Sight. Actually, that's probably the curse. Yeah. Um, So, Yahweh, Yahweh. It's repeated. When you get onto your Microsoft Word and you're you're typing up a document, if you want to highlight something, what do we do? We we bold it, we italicise it, we underline it. But in the Hebrew language, the way that, that the Hebrews would communicate an emphasis is to repeat something. So they're making a point here. They're naming him twice to build on it to make it a most important and a, 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 an urgency to understanding that, that, that he is Yahweh. The first, first point I want to make, why does God even need a name? Why are we calling God Yahweh? Why don't we just call him God? Well, the thing is, God is not a name. God is a descriptor. God is a title. At Macquarie, we call Ivan the man. It's a descriptor. Everyone knows who it is when we say, hey, it's the man. But his name is Ivan. And in the scriptures, get this, God is never called God. He's almost always called Yahweh Elohim, the Lord, your God. It's a title, Elohim, God. It's it's like calling a doctor or a lawyer. So God is is a description of what he does, not his name. So by introducing himself as Yahweh, he's actually making himself more personable. He's saying, don't call me sir, don't call me king, don't call me your eminence, your worship, call me Yahweh. He wants that first name basis with us. In Bible times, if you read the the Old Testament, there were many, many gods. There were a number of deities. And quite frankly, Yahweh wanted to establish dominance in the time. He didn't want to be known as just a God. He wanted to be the God. Uh, If you read the... So the ten plagues of Egypt. If you read that intently in the original language, each plague is actually targeted at a specific Egyptian deity in their pantheon of gods. So it's God going after each god that Egypt worshipped. So um, uh, Amon-Ra was the Egyptian god of the sun. One of the plagues that, uh, that hit Egypt, he blocked out the sun for three days, which was kind of nice because it made it feel a little bit more like Melbourne. But it, it was God's way of saying, Amon-Ra is not God. I am. I am Yahweh and I am God. 
In terms of gods, and even today, there's a multiplicity of spiritual beings, both then and now. In the Old Testament, you, you, you'll see them referring to gods. You'll see in biblical parlance, they talk of uh, people worshipping demons and, and fallen angels. Even in the New Testament, there's some categorization there where we call principalities and powers other gods. So when God says, hey, I am the Lord, your God, the God above gods, it's him putting himself at war with the other deities. That's why we call him uh, the most high God. Because there's not, there's not one God, there's multiple. And he is the God over them. Okay, let's talk about the title. Let's just say you are in the Middle East. Uh, a name is more than just a label, uh, like Craig or Ivan. A name actually builds out your character. A name in, in, Middle East, in the Middle East described who you were what you're on about, what you stood for. It wasn't just a title, it was you in a nutshell. Um, remember the big storm we had here on Wednesday? It came down, well, it knocked out our television aerial. I know, it was terrible. I was forced to talk to these other people that live in my house. There's, there's, this, there's this tall, attractive blonde woman, she, she seems nice, and then there's this short one, and there's just all this noise that comes out of his mouth. I, I, I don't understand it. So I had to ring an electrician, and I asked some mates, I need an electrician with a good name. Now, it turned up the electrician's name was Troy, but the good name was, does he do a good job? Can he be depended on? So Troy's name is out there as a good electrician. It's kind of like that. It's a simple analogy, but it's kind of like that here. When God says, this is my name, it's the whole lot. It's describing who he is. Okay, so let's go. Compassionate and gracious God. Remember, in Hebrew language, there's a law of primacy. If things are mentioned first, it means they're the most important. So God is kicking off by saying, I'm the Lord your God, and I'm compassionate and gracious. That is his opening salvo. That's the thing he wants to be most known as. So if you're in the deserts of Saudi Arabia, and it's a couple of thousand years before Jesus turns up, yeah, and you're living in this world where there are multiple gods and goddesses, that thing is commonplace, at that time, most of the gods are brutal. They're nasty, they're malevolent, they're violent, they're unreasonably cruel to the people that are worshipping them and following them. Here's the big three from the time. You've got Molech, you've got Artemis, and you've got Baal. These are the three big gods that were being looked at around this time. The thing with these three is all of them demanded child sacrifice. You can even see in Molech on the end there, they've built an altar to him and someone is actually putting a child on the altar to be sacrificed. These were the gods that people in the time were following, were worshipping. And these gods, through their messengers, were saying things like, if you want to win at war, if you want me to break the drought, if you want me to bless your crops, give up your firstborn." So the Hebrews are getting around here, the Hebrew slaves, God's people, and they're living in absolute terror of what gods want from their people. And then some of the ancients start talking about Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God, the creator God, the God that delivered his people out of Egypt and out of slavery. This, this God is, is telling everyone that he's the God above God, but strangely, he's not mad. He's not angry with us. 
He's introducing himself as compassionate and gracious. This was unheard of. It was, it was foreign to the people in the time. They didn't get that. So he comes in and he introduces himself as Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious one. That is the descriptor. Um, let's have a look at that in the Hebrew. Here we go. We're going to nerd out here because I'm the, the, the geek of geeks and the nerd of nerds. This is compassionate and gracious in the Hebrew. El kanun we rachum. If you say that, just get a tissue and wipe the neck of the person in front of you. Um, so compassionate. Let's break this word down. The root word there is to have a female womb. So where are my sisters at? The, the, the feminine side of God is coming out here. That is the feeling that he has towards us is of a mother caring for, raising up, nurturing a child. It's, in, it's the same word used in Psalm 103. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. There is a womb-like love, protection, safety for you in God. Uh, when my kid, when Parker stirs in the middle of the night, Carly is up and at him straight away, and, and I'm not so much. I'm like, this kid needs to develop resilience. It's not like that with God. He's not tormenting you to make you stronger. He doesn't take you through things because he's cruel. He is there with a womb-like love for you. It's that parental feeling. And then rachum, gracious. It's an action word meaning to bend or to incline towards. One rabbi that I was reading this week said this. It's an action from a superior to an inferior who has no real claim for gracious treatment. God is inclined towards you. He is inclined to help you with that motherly, parental love. So it's compassion and it's grace. It's both the feeling towards you and then it's also the inclination or the action towards you. And if we look at one of the other occasions in the Old Testament where this verse is quoted, it's in Jonah. Um, you probably all know the story of Jonah. God asks Jonah to go to Nineveh to preach to the Ninevites because it's great wickedness that's come up against him. In 9 BC in Nineveh, it was the capital of Assyria uh, where Iraq is today. It was oppressive. Nineveh was the arch enemy of God's people. They dragged them off into slavery. They oppressed them. They put them into captivity. And I need to paint a bit of a dark picture here. So we'll go to a dark place for a minute and then we'll come out and all the immaturity will be back very soon. They discovered a library of the writings of the kings of Nineveh at the time of Jonah. Uh, the king's library with their writings. And these are four of the kings that are around at the time. You'll note the trendy beards that they've all got. Uh, Shalmaneser II, Sennacherib, Anasarapal, and Ashbenapal. Uh, and this is where it gets dark. This is what they were doing to the people of God. They were building pyramids from the skulls of those that they had killed. They were impaling people in public, cutting off hands so that they would live as cripples. They were skinning defeated kings and draping the skins over the walls and making flags and banners out of the skins of their enemies. And when they, when they defeated a people, they would pierce the chin of the king, pass a metal ring through that hole and chain the king up in the public square to a kennel and make the king live as a dog. I say all that to say that Jonah wasn't really keen to plant a grace church in Nineveh. This was not great. So he nicks off to Tarshish. Now, if you look on a modern map, 
Nineveh is in Iraq, Tarshish is in Spain. It's as far as you could get on an ancient map. So he legs it out of there. I'm not doing this. And it says in the scripture, get this, it wasn't that he was running away from Nineveh, he was running away from the Lord. We'll find out why in a bit. So long story short, Jonah runs into a whale. They have a complicated relationship. And Jonah ends up going to Nineveh. He preaches at Nineveh and shock and behold, Nineveh repents. The whole city turns to God. In fact, in Jonah 6, let's read it. This is a proclamation of the king remembering what they did at the time. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his robes, covered himself with sackcloth, sat down in the dust. And this is his proclamation that he issued. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion, same word, turn from his fierce anger so we don't perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned, he relented. God sometimes changes his mind long story there, and didn't bring the destruction he threatened. Now Jonah is watching this happen and he gets ticked. He feels that the compassion God shows is very wrong. But Jonah, to Jonah this seemed very wrong and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. This is what I said, Lord, when I was still at home. I knew this would happen, essentially. That's what I was wanting to avoid by running away to Tarshish. I knew, and this is a quote of Exodus 34, I knew you were a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, a God who relents from sending calamity. Let's bring this home a little bit. It's nice that God is compassionate and gracious, but like Jonah, what happens when we see God be compassionate to people we can't stand? Sometimes I want to choose compassion for one person but not for the other. And Jonah is ticked off. He is angry because God decided to show compassion to people who had murdered his family, raped his loved ones, dragged them all off into slavery. But for me, I sometimes get ticked when something nice happens to someone I don't like. I'm not going through the circumstances that Jonah went through, but still I get angry and believe the compassion of God is wrong. It says in the scriptures that he lets it rain on both the righteous and the unrighteous. People who deserve it and people who don't. There are consequences, there are implications to following a God who is compassionate and gracious. Uh, When I was in high school, uh, I got bullied pretty hard, particularly by one absolute turkey of a bloke. Uh, He riled me up, he brought me to tears quite a bit. He crumbled me inside. There were uh, things that happened where I was having unhealthy thoughts about maybe cutting off my destiny. Um, Made my life a daily hell for years. About seven years ago at a high school reunion, he was there. And he's become an incredibly successful craft cider brewer. One of the world's finest. And I had to check my heart. I had to take this to God. I spent most of my high school years wishing pestilence and psoriasis on him, you name it. Uh, (laughs) But now he's living a blessed life. He's married a beautiful French woman. 
He's worked his way up to the head of brewing production at this boutique cider brewery in Tassie, and he has won international acclaim and awards. Um, I, uh, I went out and bought a bottle of it the day after, and damn it, it was flipping fantastic. It was, <laughs> it was wonderful. And it got me thinking about a truth that's in God, and this might rub some people up the wrong way. God is not necessarily on your side. God is not on my side. God is on his own side. And there are moments, day-to-day moments, where we are either for him or against him. And for me, the challenge, the journey, is to make sure that more often than not, I am on God's side. And sometimes that involves watching as he blesses people I can't stand. And you just can't trust this God because he goes around blessing everyone. It's, <laughs> it's outrageous. There's this caricature sometimes, I want to break some theology that I've seen. There's this caricature sometimes when we read the Old Testament, that the Old Testament God is mean-spirited, he's an angry warmonger, and that somehow Jesus is this this soft grace, bathrobe-wearing, Scandinavian, left-leaning, vegan hippie. Uh, He doesn't eat chocolate, he eats carob. Um, (laughs) And it pictures a father in the Old Testament as this mean, wanting to kill everyone, angry God. And Jesus is like, no, no, Daddy. Don't kill everyone, kill me. And, and somehow now everyone's going to be living happy, gluten-free lives, bathing in soy milk. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's not like that. What you see in Jesus is a replication of what he has seen his father doing. So in Luke 18.35, we haven't got time to read it, but it's the story of the blind beggar. He's standing outside the gates of Jericho. Jesus walks past. The beggar starts yelling out, Son of David, have compassion on me. It's interesting to see how some people approach God because it speaks to a lot of the theology that we carry, and I'm taking a big stick to myself here. Um, Many people come to God based on who they are. Uh, in prayer, you'll hear it. I've done this myself. Hey God, I'm a good person. I haven't sinned that much this week. How about you answer my prayer? Or the alternate, hey God, life is hard. I'm a victim. I don't deserve this. Please answer my prayer. And they go to God based on themselves. Some people go to God based on their circumstances. Oh, I'm single, I'm I'm unemployed, I'm not in ministry, I'm not rich, I'm I'm not this, I'm not that. Hear my cry because of this situation. But then there's another way, and it's what the beggar does. He cries out to God, not based on who he is or what he's going through, but based on who Jesus is. He came based on the fact, because he used it in his words, that God is compassionate and gracious. Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, do that thing that your name represents. Do that thing that you've said on your business card that you can do. There's no, uh, I'm a victim, there's no, I was born blind, there's no, it's not fair. It's not a, hey, I'm a good person, hey, I pray twice a day, hey, I, I download Stephen Furtick podcasts and I listen to them when I'm spread-eagled on a giant map of Israel. It's just who you are, I'm going to come to you based on that. 
So Jesus stops. He asks the beggar, what is it you want me to do? He says, I want to see. And he's healed. And Jesus says, your faith has healed you. Now, the only display of faith that could have happened there is that he believed in who Jesus said he was. Your healing has come from believing who I say I am. And here's an important point, and this breaks down that old angry God theology. Jesus is compassionate and gracious, just like his father, Yahweh. It's in the family line. Jesus himself feels and acts because that's what his father did. He doesn't get down and cry with the bloke. He doesn't run off saying, oh, look, I'll pray for you as he runs off to a conference. He gets down in the dirt and helps this guy out. And I've got a problem. This is me sharing a problem. I've got a problem when the only thing we as Christians do is put up on a Twitter feed our oh, thoughts and prayers. Uh, the Washington Post did a study last year. There were 600,000 entries on Twitter where people put up thoughts and prayers towards a particular outcome. But we don't know what action, that motivation, the compassion was great and it was there, but where did the action, the grace, the inclination come from at that point? And for me, it's got to be compassion and grace. It's got to be feelings and actions. The miracle is in the end. The miracle sits in the end. Sometimes I get stirred up emotionally and I don't do anything apart from thoughts and prayers. And God has called me to be his hands and his feet. Carly and I, Dan, you be careful because I'm talking about your sister. Um, Carly and I had a big fight this week about this very thing. About me moving from compassion to grace. And sometimes, you know how sometimes the corrective and guiding voice of God sounds remarkably like your spouse. Uh, he's onto me about this. He's working hard to change me. And, and look, we're fine. Carly and I are fine. We follow the biblical principle of don't go to bed angry. So um, I haven't slept for three days. Uh, <laughs> but, but, but by thunder, I'm going to win. Uh, what are we doing as a people and as a church to move in the end, to go from compassion to grace? Mission Sunday, I sat there when the Haynes Home thing came up and there was a young lady talking about the work opportunities and I started tearing up. And just at that point, knowing that I was preaching today, God said, all right, bucko, what are you going to do about the end? And so I, I, I was moved. And from what we saw, many of you have been moved too. Andrew, you've been moved. You're doing stuff. You're putting legs on the compassion and turning it into tangible grace for these people and I honour you. Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm over time, so I probably need to start concluding, but I'll, uh, I'll finish with this. There's a couple of things I would like us to reflect on. Sometimes I have struggled uh, with a sense that God is disappointed in me, that I haven't become everything that he has spoken into me. I'm not, I'm not living out my business card. And that is an issue of my theology of God. Because I'm believing something about the Father that isn't true. And if I can get a little bit surgical, there is probably things in you that are affecting you right now based on a wrong theology. Now, I'll disclaim that. Theology is essentially man-made because it's a study. Theology is interpretation. But we have to take it back to the Word. 
What has God said about you? God is not angry with you. God is not poised like a cobra ready to strike. He has that maternal womb towards you, that enveloping, protective love towards you, and he is inclined towards you in grace. Who are you created to be? And how are you called to live out his image in the world? The scripture talks about how I will do this because my father did it. We are all children of Yahweh. So where can we imitate God? That was a huge thing in the Jewish mindset, to imitate God. How can I, this week, when, when the nation's greatest cider brewer comes up and says hello, how can I imitate God? When the boss that fired you unfairly comes into your circle again, how can you imitate God? When the person in your small group that's been gossiping about you behind your back How can you imitate compassion and graciousness? What would it look like to step into compassion and grace, to feeling and action, to be others-centred? I'll finish off with this last thing from A.W. Tozer. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that compose the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Just as her most significant message is what she says about him. How you understand God and your theology of him will define you. It will shape you. It really will. I heard a quote, we become like the God we believe in. For me, more and more, day to day, I need to grow in my understanding and appreciation that Yahweh, Yahweh, is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Because at the top of the list, the number one thing, The God that spoke the universe into existence, the creator God, the God above all gods, above all kings, the eternal and uncontested one, he is compassionate towards you. He's not out to get you, but he's out to get you. Um, Last week, Ros said this, when you get the who of God, the why doesn't matter. I could tell you tales of the whys that I've tried to seek in God, the things, the circumstances. And you, you too, we could pass the microphone around and we would hear some stuff where you have been asking why. Can I encourage you? Focus on the who. Focus on who he is. Focus on getting that theology more in line with who he says he is in the scripture. Because as that revelation grows, not only will we feel more encased, protected, and embraced by him, but will reflect him more and more to the people just outside those doors who have no idea he exists and who have no idea of the love and compassion that he has for them. Because some of them are probably out there thinking God's angry. Many of the people I meet in my workplace, and yes, I work for the government, so a lot of them feel quite condemned, um, feel the same about God. When I start having these conversations, oh, no, he, 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 no. He's going to get me in the neck. No, he's not. Sure, in the journey, he starts to work on us and refine us and make us more into the image of his son. 
as we imitate him more and more, some of these things just fall away. But this week, how can we all reflect his compassion and his grace more and more? Can I pray for you? God, Yahweh, Yahweh, compassionate and gracious God, we need you. We need to have that revelation by your spirit more and more of, your, of, of this correct theology of who you are. We thank you for the revelation you have given us in your word. I pray that you would put legs on, us, on, on it. Help us to see it in reality. Help us to see and experience and feel and sense your compassion. Help us to sense it as you incline in grace towards us. Help us to sense it as you move amongst us. And help us, God, to carry that and imitate it this week. Father, I pray for all of us, where there is an opportunity to extend that compassion and to move in action with that grace, help us to know that it's you. By your spirit, prompt us to move. We love you. We honour you, King of kings, God of gods, Lord of lords. In Jesus' name. While we've got our eyes closed and our heads bowed, look, I'm I'm not sure where you're at this morning. I'm, I'm not sure what's going on in your world. I'm not sure what you think about God. I'm not sure what happens when you walk out of the door of this church and get in your car and you drive away and you take off your church mask. Know this, the God, the creator God, loves you and it wants to extend compassion and grace towards you. Maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, yeah, but I'm, <laughs> I'm not fit for this, this is not for me. Know this, he loves you. Maybe this morning is an opportunity to become a Christian. The 1st of March, 2020, the start of a new season. Maybe, it, maybe a, an, an opportune time to put your life in, under the love and leadership of Jesus Christ. If that's you, I want to pray for you. We'll keep this quick. What I'm going to do, I'm going to count to three. I'd ask you to put your hand up. We'll see it. After the service, myself, some of the leaders may come and see you. We'll pray for you. If you haven't got a Bible, we'll get one into your hands and we'll start you. On this journey, we want, to, we want the privilege of introducing you more and more to this compassionate and gracious God. So if that's you, on the count of three, hand up and we'll see it. One, two, maybe it's today, three. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. Father, I pray for the beautiful people of Macquarie Life Church. I pray this week they would sense your closeness, they would sense your tangible presence. Give them a good week. Bless them, Lord. Let the rains fall on their crops this week. Let them know that you love them. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you have enjoyed this message. For more information, please visit macquarielifechurch.com.au. Thank you for listening. We hope you have enjoyed this message. For more information, please visit macquarielifechurch.com.au.